I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 14th, 2019. Coming up, we speak with Larry Gold, founder of the Gold Lab Symposium, taking place this Friday and Saturday at CU Boulder. This is about health. This is not about science. We use science to, to make progress in health, but we shouldn't exclude these things that we don't understand yet. Well, Larry Gold, here we go again with the Gold Lab Symposium. This is your 10th symposium. Yes, it is. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that something that just started out as an idea where you wanted to educate the community of Boulder about cutting-edge science every year would keep going and have a large following at this point? Yeah, I, I think this year will probably fill every seat. I think we'll have close to 500 people, I think. I looked through all the programs we had for the last 10 years just to see how it going from my end. During that first symposium, I actually called it the first annual Gold Lab Symposium with uh, astonishing chutzpah. Um, but we've done it 10 years. It's kind of amazing and wonderful. And each year you do it at the CU Munzinger Auditorium. It will be this Friday and this Saturday there at the Munzinger Auditorium. People can find out more by going to the goldlabfoundation.org. It looks to me like on this symposium this year, you're going to focus primarily on the immune system, autoimmune diseases, and cancer. That, that's true. It's, you know, the way I do it every year, or the way we do it every year, is we collect... 16 people that we admire and uh, adore and then we figure out after the fact what how they hang together and this is the most coherent symposium we ever had as though we knew what we were doing uh, one would be wrong to think that <laughs> But it, it, is, it is an amazingly coherent collection of speakers. How would you explain it to people how autoimmune disease, the immune system, and cancer are related? They're really opposite sides of the same biology. And that's now true because the leading new therapy in cancer is called immuno-oncology. It's called that. And it is a remarkable change and last year at the symposium, the, the guy who spoke a lot about how we haven't made a lot of progress about treating cancer, the real progress has been early detection and resection. And at the end of his talk, which never mentioned immunology, it was a great talk, never mentioned, on the website, by the way, so you can actually see it again. And at the end, I asked him, to tell us a little bit about the connection between the immune system and oncology and what's new in a way, which is an area I know very well. And he gave an extraordinary explanation of how tumors are foreign. And in your mind, one might think that the same kind of thing that causes autoimmune diseases might protect us 
against our tumors, which are different from self. They are not the same. They're, they're related, but not the same. And what's happened in the last several years is that both for melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer, immune therapeutics, stimulating the immune system to go after your tumor is um, something that works astonishingly well, curative for some people who with stage four disseminated disease. So there's already, wow, really? Not just early disease, but, but stage four disseminated disease can be treated when people are lucky, when patients are lucky, with immune stimulatory drugs. And that work is exploding. We'll hear about that a little bit more than we did last year. So they're connected. So they're connected. Now, you said that this kind of therapy, this immune system therapy for cancer, works when people are incredibly lucky. What happens when they're not that lucky? The people who respond well to these drugs is not everyone, and it is uh, the fraction of people who respond well can be 1% for pancreatic cancer and maybe 50% for melanoma, maybe 25 or 30% for non-small cell lung cancer. And of course, the scientists are trying to figure out how to drive those numbers up, the pharma companies and the clinical trials, to drive those numbers up and to understand what's going on. And and I want to add, since, since when I said they're opposite ways of thinking about the same system, one of the side effects of this kind of stimulation of the immune system to go after your tumor can be and frequently is autoimmune diseases. So people who are cured of a lethal stage four disseminated cancer will get over time can get over time, many do, autoimmune diseases like type 1 diabetes can show up in someone who survives because of the immune stimulation, but then ends up with what we think of as a childhood disease where your islet cells in your pancreas go away because of an autoimmune condition. And so the goal over the next decade will be to make those treatments those immune stimulatory treatments as fast as you can do them, declare the patient now vaccinated essentially against his or her own tumor, and then stop the treatment so that the side effects of autoimmune diseases don't uh, manifest. So this is, you know, it's still science, but it it's the biggest thing that's happened, I think, in oncology treatment in the last, uh, well, ever since the first leukemia drugs 50 years ago. I mean, this is a big deal. Yes, you know, there is a lot of talk right now about these immune system therapies for fighting cancer. And I suspect most people would be willing to trade their ability to have insulin production, meaning their likelihood of having type 1 diabetes for being able to save their lives from a cancer that would be fatal otherwise. But that's not the only immune system reaction that can happen. There are certainly many, many people today who have these therapies where 
they have to discontinue the therapy because their immune system starts attacking their heart. It starts attacking their lungs. It starts to amplify their immune system so much, it's just attacking their entire body. Yes, that's a problem. For sure, it seems from where we're sitting, because neither one of us is suffering today from cancer or an autoimmune disease, that it looks like a pretty good trade. I've I've heard from physicians who treat an autoimmune disease, rheumatoid arthritis, that the penalty, if you will, of a very severe case of rheumatoid arthritis can be just so debilitating that that maybe we're being a little glib about that. This is this is going to be a part of the way that science and pharma companies and medicine will have to make this better and better, you know. So I, I agree. My in- instinct is like yours. Life is precious, but, you know. Uh, there are some things where trying to save life can kill a person. The amazing part is that in our bodies, when we have health, it means that our own bodies, our own immune system is making these very discreet decisions place by place in our toes, in our heart, in our pancreas, in our intestines, in our brain, making these very discreet decisions that both spontaneously stop most cancers and also spontaneously accurately identify what is an invader versus what is our own tissue and don't attack our own tissue. So our bodies, when they're healthy, do it right. That's right. There's an evolved set point for the immune system that's uh, set between killing us by autoimmune uh, activity uh, and and preventing things like cancers or virus infections and bacteria and all this stuff. And so there there's a set point and and we're messing with it uh, and in these this field of immuno oncology and you want to mess with that very very carefully and thoughtfully. And so I I agree with you. And then how about the other side of this, the autoimmune conditions, where you have some speakers discussing that side of it? It's my understanding right now, many autoimmune treatments increase the risk of cancer. Yes, that's true. I mean, one of my my favorite, not favorite, but a bit of significant story uh, is that when Mickey Mantle got a liver transplant and had to go on cyclosporin to prevent rejection of his liver, his donated liver, the cyclosporin treatment, in my mind for sure, meaning I think, uh, allowed tumors that were already in his body to now grow because the immune system was uh, keeping that tumor in check. And he died of a cancer, I think, as a result of the treatment that allowed him to be saved by a liver transplant. Double-edged sword all the way through. A lot of biology is a double-edged sword. This is one of the things that makes it uh, complicated. That's why the title, I like the title of this year's seminar, the symposium, Causal Inferences. Nobody understands causality at all. What we really understand is correlations. And, uh, And because we're pattern recognizers, we just love to think when we've seen a correlation, we've seen causality. And of course, that's stupid. 
Oh, you mean that when the moon is in, uh, what is it, the moon is in Aquarius, that that means that your risk of cancer is less during surgery or something like that? Yeah, that's pattern recognition. And it may be true, who knows, but it's not something that most people would say stays consistent from person to person. And you're looking in science for something that you can identify in a predictable way will help people be healthy. I think that the likelihood that uh, the state of the moon is involved in cancer treatment is small. But, you know, I'm always open to learning. That's what I can say. There's my, I'm giving a talk for 15 minutes, and my last slide is the most astonishing correlation I've ever seen. And you'll have to come to the symposium to see my slide that was given to me by a somologic friend. And uh, it, it makes the point that there is a difference between causality and correlation. Oh, my goodness. Now we have this tease about why to come to the symposium on Friday when you'll give this talk. What time does the symposium start on Friday? The first talk is at 8.30 in the morning. Okay, that's the time to see this slide. That Are you going to give anything away about it now that you've piqued our interest? No. <laughs> It's too good. It is my favorite slide uh, ever. I've I've used it ten times since my friend Naboisha gave it to me. (laughs) Well, in that case, this will be a reminder for people: if you're not able to go to the Gold Lab Symposium this Friday and Saturday, all of these talks will be posted online at the Gold Lab Foundation site. That's right. Well, let's talk now about some of your speakers. I was looking at this this morning in in thinking about what we might talk about. And I don't think I've ever felt quite this way. I mean, I've always been nervous about how it might go over. But this is, you know, this is the best. Not only is it coherent, but the people that said they would come are are just remarkable. I mean, I, I, if I pick out anybody, of course, then I'll insult someone else, and I don't mean to do that. Mark Fishman, who was the, got the person who's a, he's a cardiologist at Harvard now, and for decades he ran uh, Novartis's uh, drug discovery section for various rare diseases in Cambridge, Mass., and now, as a professor at Harvard, because he retired from that job, he did a wonderful job there. And his talk is called Extreme Clinical Phenotypes in Drug Discovery and Medical Education. You know, this is really, if you will, about how rare, what we call rare diseases are individually rare, but in some they are a third of what goes on in medicine. There, there are 7,000 known rare diseases, you know, with air quotes around the word rare. And, you know, and some of them uh, don't affect many people. I don't know if you remember, Shelley, but we had a talk years ago. I, 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 I just, I think rare diseases are a window into human biology in a very important way. And about six years ago, or seven maybe, Matt Might, uh, who was then at the University of Utah, gave a talk called, uh, What Do You Do When You're the First? Because he and his wife were each carriers, and they had a son who's still alive, and the son was the first person ever. Uh, he had a one in four chance of of being 
sick or at least being homozygous for that disease. And it turns out the, the disease is called Engli-1. It's named actually after the mutation, so it doesn't tell you much. But, you know, this was a failure to thrive, a terrible disease. And we're going to have another talk on at this one on Saturday afternoon about Batten's disease, which is also ultra-rare. And, and these things not only teach you about human biology in a way that's devastating for the people who are directly affected. Uh, but there are, there are stories of successes, and that's what Mark Fishman is trying to do at his Harvard job. And, uh, and we're going to hear from a local person here in, uh, in Boulder named Julia Vitarello, whose daughter, who was a perfectly healthy child, um, because the onset of Batten's disease is not at birth, but but a little later. And she and the doctor treating in a personalized way. You know, this is personalized medicine. The, the section title is called for that fourth section. Personalized medicine is personal. You know, this is a, a good title for the, the last afternoon on Saturday. And they have... They have done something heroic with the permission and encouragement of the FDA. And we're going to hear about that. And I think it's a foreshadowing of what will happen as we learn more about individuals' rare diseases. The FDA and the scientific community and the, and the pharma and biotech companies will, cons- not, will, will uh, synergize to give a little bit of hope and we'll hear that in, in that talk. And Matt might, from the Engli One talk that he gave years ago, is coming back to moderate that session. The speakers come back year after year. We invite them to be part of our family. And of the, I don't know, 100 and whatever it is, 144 speakers we've had over nine years, uh, you know, probably 50 of them or 40 of them come back. Uh, we have a bunch of them coming back this year again. And so there's a, a kind of a continuity to what's going on. So far, we're talking about rare diseases or diseases that have a genetic side to them. A Batten disease is very much a rare genetic disease where many of the therapies involve genetic interventions or chemical interventions to address this genetic mistake that's happening. Many diseases are not that. They have more to do with our environment. And I see that one of your talks will be with Charles Cantor about the oxygen paradox, a new approach to treat neurodegenerative diseases, which are more based on what's happening in our environment. What's that one about? Charles Cantor was once the director of the Human Genome Project. And I heard him give a talk about uh, eight months ago and it was really a talk about what we all do. We all take these, you know, omega, you know, fish oils and things like that. And Charles and a group of people have been working on that. And he's going to tell us about some of the side effects of what we take to lower our cholesterol and lower our lipids and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, human biology is sort of almost always on a knife edge. 
I mean, think of blood clotting. I know, I know you've thought about a lot of this, Shelley. Blood clotting. If you clot at the wrong time and you end up solid, and blood doesn't flow so well, right? That's a bad thing. And 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 yet you have to have a capacity to clot quickly because of being, you know, bitten by a whatever, you know, a wild boar or whatever. So you have. A, cl- a need to be on a knife edge. And a lot of biology, the immunology, autoimmune um, axis is one of those. And it turns out that how you uh, do even supplements will be part of what we talk about at that second session. Well, yes, because supplements, antioxidants as an example, if somebody takes a lot of antioxidants, they may not be stressing their mitochondria their little battery packs inside of their cells enough to help cull out the ones that are underperforming. And that can actually cause more problems for a cell than if those get stressed enough that they just die and get replaced by something fresh. Uh, Yes. What you're going to hear from Charles at this thing is right up there with the most astonishing things you've ever heard. You're going to hear another one in the same session from the present chair of MCDB. C. Boulder's Molecular and Cellular Biology Development whatever. Yep, whatever those whatever those letters stand for. Lee Niswander is my friend. She's a, the chair. She's a wonderful scientist. And you can't tell from her title what she's going to talk about, but I know what she's going to talk about because I've read a version of her paper and I've been following it for the last couple of years. And it's an astonishing story. And and the thing she's going to talk about is, I'll bet in Boulder, my bet is 95% of the people in Boulder take too much of this stuff. What is the stuff that they're taking too much of? I'm not going to tell you that. You have to come and hear the talk or, or, or watch the thing. Because she intentionally, I'm looking at her title, she left it out. Too much of a good thing, considering gene-environment interactions and health and disease. It could be about anything. But I know what it's about. It's a completely common. And the, its use, its use, that thing, uh, is good when it's used properly. That is, it's known to be very important and good uh, for people when they need it. And so this is a great title, Too Much of a Good Thing. Larry Gold, I am so curious, though, because you're not letting us know what these things will be. You're telling us to come to this Gold Lab Symposium at CU's Munziger Auditorium this Friday and Saturday, or else go online after the program is done and go to the Gold Lab Foundation site to hear what these punchlines are. I don't know if too much of a good thing would be taking too much Tums or taking too much vitamin D or taking too much vitamin B or taking too much of a statin drug. You're not letting us know that right now. Uh, Guilty as charged. I'll I'll give you slightly more of a hint, okay? It is something you would think of as a vitamin. Well, we'll need to go to your talk to find out. It's not a statin there, okay? I mean, Lee's never talked about this publicly yet. I have two audiences, yours and Lee, and I see Lee a lot more than I see you, so I'm going to be nice to Lee. But, you know, come. I mean, this will not be a secret after... uh, And this is so far unpublished. You know, that's another nice thing that happens. People come to these things, and because the dialogues are so interesting, you know, not just scientists, the scientists, but but people uh, talking to each other, 
that they're willing to talk about data that are not yet published, which is wonderful. So I read a book uh, a while ago by a woman scientist from London. I'm blocking on the name of the book. Her name is Joe Marchant. She went from being a practicing scientist to a journalist who wrote about stuff. Yes, that book is Cure, A Journey into the Science of Mind Over Body. We've gotten her to come to give a talk about the mind-body connection, a bolder topic of some interest. And you might remember that um, about five years ago, Ted Kapchuk, who's on the, the videos, and the people could go look that up, gave the most astonishing talk in our 10 years on the placebo effect. And, of course, the placebo effect is real. That is, people do get better, okay, knowing it was a placebo. So this is an astonishing thing. And, and Joe Marchant's book uh, talked about Ted's experiment and many others. You know, I have, a, I have trouble with the phases of the moon, but I don't have any trouble with placebos. Hmm, that's kind of wonder, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it's true that um, there are mysteries, and we've got to be honest. Mysteries have to be thought about. And if, if it turned out to be the phases of the moon were actually real, uh, you know, that is, you did, you know, counting. It's a, not a clinical trial exactly. You just tell people the data. And uh, if it turned out that there was something there, we'd have to think about it. You want to have the data, though. You want to have the data that will show which one of these crazy ideas out there, which one of these interventions that may or may not work actually seems to have an effect on the human body. That's right. And sometimes you can't figure it out. And when you can't figure it out, but the data are good, you should use it anyway. I mean, if, if, if the placebo effect was real and you could find a doctor who wore you know, glasses and a stethoscope and a fake white coat and had his name typed on his jacket, who, when talking to people, made them better, you'd clone that person and that person would be part of the health system. I mean, this is, not, this is about health. This is not about science. We use science to, to make progress in health, but we shouldn't exclude these things that we don't understand yet. It's okay. Well, thank you for speaking with us, Larry Gold, of the Gold Lab Symposium and also Somalogic. Your talks and your presentations this year will be at Munzinger Auditorium, Friday and Saturday, open to the public, and then online afterward at goldlabfoundation.org. And that's where to go to sign up as well for going to the talks? Yes, yes. And, uh, and thank you, Shelley. It's always, a, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line, 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. Shelley Schlender.